the bottom line in business. Voice America Business. Good morning, and thanks for tuning in to Leaders Playbook, where you'll discover what emotional intelligence is all about and how to raise yours to be a top performer in business. Now, here's your host, Dr. Rell. Welcome to Leaders Playbook, Tools for Top Performance. The goal here is to give you some hands-on tools, practices to raise your emotional intelligence. Do you know what the key behaviors or actions are that can torpedo your career, derail you, or get you off the track of being a star? Do you have a boss that's a jerk or zaps your energy? Do you know what you can do about that? The answer to these questions are the focus of this session. I am Dr. Rowan Adler, your host, and today's guest for the Star Secret segment is Dr. Robert Sutton of Stanford University, and he'll be talking about those bullies, creeps, jerks, tyrants, tormentors, and egomaniacs who do their best to destroy you at work. First, I want to look at where we've come. This is the second show, and ideally, last week you looked at what it takes to become a star performer. And some of the basics, a star performer, to give you the definition, is someone who operates in the top 10%. And what we know is someone who has emotional intelligence is some of the keys to get to be in the top 10%. What is emotional intelligence? Well, it's defined as understanding and managing yourself and understanding and managing others. One of the basic premises are emotions are contagious, and leaders are the emotional thermostat of their team. So in a moment, we're going to talk about bullies. We're going to talk about jerks at work. Um, they are the emotional thermostat at work. If they're calm, they're collected. The team is calm and collected. If they're irritable, defensive, and blaming, the team is irritable, defensive, and blaming. One of the goals of this show is to give you specific tools to get you in the top 10%. A lot of the research has shown that if you can get someone in the top 10%, whether that be you or your direct reports, that person is twice uh, as valuable in earning revenue as someone from the 89th percentile and less. Also, we know about emotional intelligence. 70% uh, of the reasons for losing customers are due to low emotional intelligence. Uh, poor customer relations like irritability, defensiveness. So the goal here is to give you micro-initiatives. Micro-initiatives can create macro-impacts. When I work with executives like an executive coach, everybody's busy. They don't have much time to do what's needed uh, in regards to, first, focusing on their tasks, and then, second, to develop their people. So in this show, and we're going to talk a lot about these micro-initiatives, what are things that maybe take 10 seconds, uh, 30 minutes, an hour, small amount of time that can really allow you to be a star in your field? The last session, we talked with Dr. Richard Boyatzis, who is one of the leaders and founders of Emotional Intelligence. And one of the things he talked about was to have a resident leader Ideally, in the work world, is to have a three-to-one positive-to-negative ratio. Three positive interactions to one negative. And that was taken from some of the work of John Gottman in relationships found that for relationships to sustain, there should be a five-to-one positive-to-negative relationship. He also mentioned that when you're working on your development plan, first you should focus on your dreams, your goals, uh, what motivates you. To make change is very challenging, and it takes about three to six months to make any significant change. And then it takes about six to 12 months for anybody to realize that you've made a change. So when I coach individuals, I tell executives, you have two challenges. One, you have to make some changes, which is hard enough, looking at some micro-initiatives, what are some things you can do different. But two, how does anybody know that you've made a change? So how in a... uh, genuine way can you promote the change can you celebrate can you let people see some of the changes that you've made if you downloaded the EI star profile from the leadersplaybook.com 
The goal was to see how you rated on some of the EI competencies. STARS do these competencies regularly, consistently, 80% of the time. And so when you look at understanding yourself, managing yourself, understanding others, managing others, there's uh, 18 to 20 competencies. And what I found that is STARS do about 9 or 10 of these competencies really well. So you don't have to be a star in everything, but if you look at the EI star profile, <clears throat> about 9 or 10 across all those is what's going to be important. And the key, the key in development is to focus first on your strengths. How do you take initiative and, and do it a little bit more? How do you look at influence and move those to certain areas? How do you bridge some of those strengths? <clears throat> if you're a little lower in teamwork, how do you take your trustworthiness and possibly initiative and move those to some of the initiatives around teamwork? So that's the goal in development. Unless what we're going to talk about today, you have some of these fatal flaws or derailers. Those must be fixed, and those are the things uh, that we're going to be covering today. So a little bit about just the power of bosses. Dr. Sutton is going to talk about uh, some of the power issues that go on when you have a bullying boss in a couple minutes. But the Gallup organization studied 2 million employees out of 700 companies. And what they found is how long someone stays at the company and how productive he or she is is determined directly by their immediate boss. What's the relationship with your boss? Is it good? Is it poor? One of the things that's interesting in some of the literature is as soon as a direct report talks to their boss, their blood pressure goes up. So we know blood pressure is invisible, but in that relationship, as soon as a direct report talks to their boss, their blood pressure goes up. Some of the interesting research about the relationship between bosses and employees, if a worker feels unfairly criticized, which probably happens by a bullying boss, or they have a boss who does not listen to their problems, so unfairly criticized, and the boss doesn't listen to your problems, you will have a rate of coronary disease 30% higher. That's right, 30% higher than those who feel treated fairly. Unfairly criticized and a, a boss who doesn't listen to your problems. So one tool from the Coach's Corner, because through this show we want to give you star secrets, and we're going to have that with Dr. Robert Sutton, but then I want to give you some Coach's Corner, some things that I use. If you and your boss could sit down and each of you independently write what are the top five responsibilities. So if you're the direct report, you'd say, okay, in my job, what are my top five responsibilities? And then the boss independently would say, okay, here for your job is your top five responsibilities. When that happens, what do you think of the five, how many are the same? Well, research shows it's not five out of five. It's 1.5 of the five are the same. So that means if you're a direct report, you're doing three and a half things that your boss doesn't want to do, which may show up later on your evaluation or performance review. So from the coach's corner, that's one tip that you can take you know, from today is how can you do your top five. So let's talk a little bit about derailers. And derailers are fatal flaws that can undermine your performance. And they need to be fixed to maximize your uh, career potential. So let me give you a couple of examples of some fatal flaws. <clears throat> uh, one of them is the smartest person in the room is a key derailer or lack of impulse control. Or you may drive people too hard, perfection, or failure to learn from your mistakes. These are some of the key derailers. At the end of this show, you'll be able to go to www.leadersplaybook.com and download the leader's template of the derailer detector. 
let's see, you know, how you are, which some of these derailers show up. And again, it's based on how often does that happen, smartest person in the room. If you do that once a month, I've worked with lawyers, and many times they say, when they looked at that, they say, we're lawyers. You know, we do this once a day. Um, but those are things in typical organizations, if it happens once a month in your meetings that you are trying to be the smartest person in the room, that's something that can be a derailer. If it happened once every three months, uh, it's not as a, uh, as a big deal. Or if it doesn't happen that often, then you don't have to worry about it. So those are some things that you can look at specifically, you can give to your teams. The difference that we're going to talk about today between a derailer and a bully, where Dr. Sutton's going to talk about assholes at work, a, a derailer hurts your own advancement. doesn't necessarily hurt others. A bully, and there's extensive research about bullies, that's more extreme, and you hurt or belittle others, many times humiliating others. In some recent research, uh, 37% of American workers have said that they have been bullied. That's 54 million people have been bullied. And so I'm going to give you an example of a couple of micro-initiatives, and then we'll uh, take a short break, and we'll hear from Dr. Sutton. So what are a few things that you could do differently as a micro-initiative? For example... The average leader in dealing with their boss, because we're going to be talking about bosses today, thinks to themselves, I'm not sure what my boss thinks of me. How am I doing? I know he or she is very busy and probably doesn't need another interruption. I think I'll just stay away unless they need something. Well, that may take, um, they may have 15 minutes informally with their boss. That's an average to good leader. A great leader, someone in the top 10% on managing the boss, same issue. What they're going to do is they're going to plan time with their boss, and they're going to sit down and say, I need to talk with you, find out how we're doing, and can I schedule some time and ideally get 30 minutes with the boss. So that's the difference between a star performer and an average performer. We're going to go to the break, and then we'll be right back with Dr. Robert Sutton. Leaders underestimate their influence and power over others and thus underperform. Dr. Relly Nadler and Leaders Playbook help leaders point the way by providing the strategic place to get to the top in a simple paint by the numbers process. Seasoned and emerging leaders will have answers to these questions. What are the steps to move up and become a star in your organization? How do you develop your people to be the next level leaders in the organization? What are your triggers that are holding you back and how do you manage them? How do you maximize your power and influence so you and your team perform better? What do you do to ensure your communication is received accurately? How do you delegate effectively? How do you develop strong relationships across the organization? Emotional intelligence training, coaching, books, and tools by Dr. Nadler are available at his website, www.truenorthleadership.com or 805-683-1066. Young people, do you want a forum to discuss your ideas and thoughts about what matters most to you? Speak Up brings together diverse voices, cultures, and ideologies from college-age adults across the country. Host Gina Holland provides a different perspective on how current affairs impact future generations. Broadcasting live every Thursday, Speak Up with Gina urges young Americans to think, ask pertinent questions, and affect change. That's Speak Up with Gina, Thursdays at 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America channel. If you want to put the pep back in your step, Chad Lafferty says just what you're looking for. Dance is life. Life is dance. It's only about dance. It's about moving through life with style, gaining awareness of the never-ending, ever-flowing movement that accompanies all of life's activities. Dance is life. Life is dance. Broadcast every Saturday morning at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Radio Network. Be sure to tune in and tap into the limitless healing that dance can provide. 
the Internet's only all-business and financial radio network, Voice America Business. You're listening to Leaders Playbook, tools for top performance. If you have a question for Dr. Nadler, feel free to email him at rnadler at truenorthleadership.com. Now, back to Dr. Rell. Hi, we're back with the Leaders Playbook, tools for top performance. And our guest today for this Star Secret interview is Dr. Robert Sutton. He's a professor at Stanford Graduate Business School, and he has published over 100 articles and 8 books. He and Jeffrey Pfeiffer uh, have written The Knowing-Doing Gap, and his latest book is The No-Asshole Rule, Building a Civilized Workplace and Surviving the One That Isn't, which will be the focus of this interview. Dr. Sutton's research and opinions are often described in the press, including the New York Times, the London Times, Business Week, Financial Times, Fortune Newsweek, and the Wall Street Journal. Bob, welcome to the show. Thanks. Great to be here. So, you know, you and I talked a little bit about some of the questions we want to get at, but so tell me a little bit about, you know, why why you wrote this book, The No Asshole Rule. Well, there, it was sort of a two-part story. The first part was that uh, when I was a new assistant professor, this was back in the mid-'80s and uh, at Stanford, I was in a department which was sort of merged out of existence eventually um, called industrial engineering, and um, we actually had the no-asshole rule, uh-huh. and our philosophy was that um, even if somebody had, and this came out of a very interesting um, faculty meeting, that even if somebody had won the Nobel Prize, we would not let them in our department if uh, they were demeaning and put down others, and you were talking about the smartest person in the room, which is a real risk in academia where people will act like they're smarter in every dimension, even if they have no expertise right. or training in it at all. Uh, so, um, and, and that led to the most civilized workplace that I've ever been part of. And it was one of those sort of places that uh, it was led by our department chair, Warren Hausman, that, um, that, that even when people would be jerks in other settings, in our department, you, they, you just wouldn't act like that because uh, it just wasn't very constructive. And uh, sort of, you know, fast-forwarding ahead, I had a, I've, I've given uh, no asshole talk to Google twice. And Google, which is, they might have some smartest people in the room problems, but they're fairly um, civilized in a lot of ways. And I had a woman come up to me at Google and say that she wasn't really a very nice person, but she had to act that way at Google because it was the only way to get your job done. So, mm. so that was like a more recent hint. And then the, the real impetus for the book was um, in late 2003, a Harvard Business Review editor um, named Julia Kirby asked me if I had an idea for some breakthrough ideas. They have a breakthrough idea section there. And as I pointed out, and Jeff Pfeffer and I point this out in our book, Hard Facts, there probably are no breakthrough management ideas. At least we couldn't find any, including in Nobel Prize winning work by economists, by the way. Hmm. Um, but um, people in, ma- in management are always – so, I mean, emotional intelligence, which I think is an excellent concept, if you look at the roots of that, it goes so far back. It goes back to at least um, leadership studies in the 50s and probably before then. Right, right. But that doesn't mean it's a bad idea. It's a great idea. And right. it, as you cite, it's a very powerful um, idea. So, um, so, I, so I suggested to Julia that I wanted to write an essay on the no-asshole rule, but I said that wasn't a breakthrough idea. And, of course, a conservative publication like Harvard Business Review would never publish such a dirty word. And then they, she called my bluff, and they published it in the most amazing thing, which, I mean, it continues just looking at my email today as I continue to um, get reactions to this, unlike anything I've ever written before, uh-huh. including my much more serious work. So but it, it, it goes to show just, ride. just having the right title, how that gets people's attention. And, and it really resonates with people. So you, re- you really did come up, come up with something that people can really uh, relate to. Yeah, the title. I mean, it's it's you know, I'd I'd like to say, oh no, no, it's the it's everything's the content of the book. But clearly, the initial reaction to the book is is the title and um, the fact that it's it's been published in respectable places. It's sort of like a funny combination that gets people's attention. But uh, what and you know, once but once you get past the title, uh, I, I mean, as you know, it, it, um, the problem of bullying or, or uh, abusive supervision or mean-spirited cultures, whatever you want to call it, is a pretty serious problem in the workplace. And as you say, the people who have this problem do uh, limit their careers and actually limit the careers of others. So yeah. I think it's an important problem. Well, you know, one of the things that you have in your book is, is the test 
for for whether or not um, you're an asshole. And for for some of our listeners who haven't read the book, and hopefully they will uh, after this to get your book. Um, what what is the the test? You have two tests in your book about you know uh, establishing whether or not someone's an asshole. Well, I mean, one is, I mean, one is, and this is the dirty dozen, and and so this is the notion that uh, the various things that people do to leave others feeling demeaned and de-energized, mm-hmm. and uh, there's actually a large literature in bullying and psychological abuse, and I'm borrowing from that. So everything from personal insults to treating people as if they're invisible to backstabbing and the like, and, and, and these are the typical sort of surveys. So, so some of those surveys you were talking about in the beginning that say 37% of Americans report they've had an abusive boss, those will be some of the sort of questions they'll ask. But um, the other thing that is in the book is a self-test, a 24-item self-test that actually my wife, who um, actually until today's her last day as a lawyer, oh, yeah. a lawyer for 25 years, uh-huh. managing a partner at a large law firm, um, and um, she's going to become the CEO of the Girl Scouts of Northern California for a little bit of a career switch. Oh, that's quite a change. It's <laughs> quite a change. Yeah. So, so she, she uh, managed a law firm with a 1,000 lawyers in at one point. And um, so um, so anyway, so since she knows a lot about managing assholes, she went through <laughs> and helped me come up with this list of things like uh, you feel surrounded by incompetent idiots and you can't um, help let, letting them know the truth now and, when, now and then. There's a there's a whole bunch of these in the book. Uh, you were a nice uh, person until you started working with the current bunch of creeps. Mm-hmm. You don't trust the people around you, and they don't trust you. And um, so we've got 24 of these, and it's on Guy Kawasaki's um, blog, and it's called the ARSE test. And so we've had 115,000 people, actually a little bit over that, fill it out since it, since Guy published it last February. Wow. And, and, I mean, the funniest thing, and this is like one of those things that, uh, as I say, I've worked as hard or harder on my prior books, but I, I have people who will come up to me and they will introduce me without telling me their name. They'll tell me their number. <laughs> They'll tell you a number on the test? <laughs> on the 24-item test. So I think below a six is a certified asshole, or below a six means you're, you're not even marginal. And I, so I was at uh, Target uh, last <laughs> this uh, doing some consulting on actually innovation not on um, asshole stuff, which is I do more work on innovation and turning knowledge into action. The, the asshole stuff is sort of a sideline that is sort of caught me up. And this, this executive, quite senior executive, just walks up to me and he goes, I'm really good, I'm a three. Didn't introduce his name to me. <laughs> I mean, that was the I, I, I had no idea what he was talking about for a second. So this is sort of like a weird thing. But, but I mean, on the positive side, um, I think it does raise awareness and hopefully it helps that executive be a little bit more civilized to his employees every now and then. Well, I think uh, in, in behavior change, and that's my, in, my, in my business as a coach and a psychologist, you know, the first thing is to raise awareness. And so I think just, you know, the uh, in one of the best behavior changes is, is uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. They have to say you have to name it to tame it. Right, right. So I think just the naming of it uh, is the first step. So, so I think that's a, a great point. And, and, and when, when people ask me why I use the A word, I mean, the first thing I say is, well, when I see other people be nasty, I say, oh, those people are assholes. But the other thing, which is probably more important on the name of detainment, yeah. I mean, it, it's not like, it, it's, it's, I don't believe that there are a small percentage of defective people out there who are demeaning and nasty. I believe that, uh, that most of us under the wrong conditions are capable of acting that way. Yeah. And so when I'm bad, I, that's what I say to myself. I say to myself, Bob, you're being an asshole. Stop it. So, right, right. <laughs> so uh, it's a self-control um, mechanism, yeah. at least for myself. Well, I think in, in, in some of these other sessions that we're going to have, we're going to be talking about self-management. Uh-huh. But I think exactly what you're saying, Bob, when somebody is stressed, and they start, uh, you know, the low part of the brain starts getting activated. They lose all their ability <clears throat> to be a good leader, and they probably turn into that asshole. I think, I think that's it. So if you ever, I mean, one guy you might have is David Meister. Mm-hmm. He, he does great stuff, and, and he wrote a, a great blog posting about the times when he loses it. Yeah. It sounds just like the, 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 he works a lot with professional service firms, consulting, and that's the same thing he was talking about. It's times like when you're stressed, when you're in an overly competitive situation. Right. And I, that's the way that I feel. It's like I, I literally lose the top half of my brain as you put it. So. Well, you know, one of the things, and this is actually for the next show, we are going to have a, a brain imaging expert, MD, PhD. Wow. And, and I'm going to be asking him that because I think, you, you know, you being a researcher, wouldn't this be phenomenal if we were able to say that when someone gets stressed, and I'm going to ask him, 
how many IQ points do you lose? Oh yeah. And if we can get a, if we can get a number on how many IQ points you lose, I think that would get people's attention. That's pretty good. Well, that's also funny. That, that's a joke I've heard before. The difference between a good lawyer and a bad lawyer is that under stress, a, a good lawyer's IQ goes up and a bad one goes down. Oh, that's good. That's good. You got so maybe this guy can test that. Yeah, I, I think that'd be an interesting study. Well, so yeah, you can check that out with your wife. I'm sure she knows that. Yeah, I don't know. So tell me about. Uh, before we go to our next break, what's some of the cost to organizations uh, of having a jerk as a boss? Well, so uh, the, the the second chapter of my book is is, is about the damage done, and um, and I, and I and, and since then I've also I maintain a blog pretty actively. I've also uh, cataloged more costs. Um, the first cost, which you actually um, talked about some in your opening too, is is the notion that um, when people um, are demeaned um, they're around a, a, a boss who makes them feel bad about themselves, who criticizes them unfairly, who ignores them. Uh, there's a lot of evidence that people who work for um, a bullying boss are in a situation where there's a lot of bullying. Um, they tend to leave at higher rates, so that's mm-hmm. a turnover cost, obviously. Um, and they also tend to have problems, like you said, higher blood pressure, a whole bunch of health problems. European studies especially confirm this. They also tend to have more work-family problems. So those effects are quite severe. And then there was just a study that's just now coming out by a guy named uh, Wayne Hockwarder, who's at Florida, mm-hmm. and he did a survey where he compared people had uh, bosses who were bullies to those who don't. Yeah. And what people do, and, and, and there's this thing called equity theory, where when people feel as if they're getting inequitable or unfair treatment, they'll put in less. Right. So I'm just sort of like looking at the list here. 30% slowed down or purposely made errors compared with 6% of those who were not reporting abuse, and they would do things like hide from their bosses, they would take longer breaks, they'd be um, absent more, and so you can, you can start seeing those sort of effects. And, and uh, finally, I mean, one of the costs that just amazes me is that, is that so if you look at this sort of turnover cost, right. there's a lot of evidence that when people have abusive boss or in abusive situations, um, they drive out good people. So the, the example in the book that's probably got the most attention I've got a part at the end right, of Chapter 2 where I talk about calculating the TCA, which is the total cost of assholes for right. your firm. Right. And there's a guy named um, Ethan who I talk about in the book. Ethan, that's not his name, but he's a real person. I, I was working with a large software firm, and they described Ethan to me, and the people from HR showed me this report that uh, they put together to um, to. Um, calculate uh, the cost of this abusive person who's always screaming at people and yelling at people, sending late night emails, giving them personal insults and the like. Right. And um, the, so the total cost of Ethan, especially the assistance he went through, was $160,000 for one year, they calculated. Wow. That's a lot of money. That's a lot. Well, we'll, we'll come back and we'll, <clears throat> let's maybe follow up with the, the Ethan story. As soon as we come back with a break, we're talking with <clears throat> Dr. Sutton, who wrote The No Asshole Rule, and we'll be right back. Most leaders underestimate their influence and power over others and thus underperform. Dr. Relly Nadler and Leaders Playbook help leaders point the way by providing the strategic place to get to the top in a simple paint-by-the-numbers process. Seasoned and emerging leaders will have answers to these questions. What are the steps to move up and become a star in your organization? How do you develop your people to be the next level leaders in the organization? What are your triggers that are holding you back and how do you manage them? How do you maximize your power and influence so you and your team perform better? What do you do to ensure your communication is received accurately? How do you delegate effectively? How do you develop strong relationships across the organization? Emotional intelligence training, coaching, books, and tools by Dr. Nadler are available at his website, www.truenorthleadership.com or 805-683-1066. Keeping families together, whole and healthy, is sometimes a serious challenge to parents. And when there is a crisis, where do you turn for help? Right here. The Parents' Hour with Dr. Arlene Kerman, an open and frank forum covering both legal and social issues surrounding our kids. Tune in for The Parents' Hour with Dr. Arlene Kerman every Friday at 7 a.m. Pacific, 10 a.m. Eastern on the Voice America Radio Network. 
film lovers, moviegoers, and living room critics, it's your turn to be heard. Do you love movies? Then you'll love Flick Chicks. Open your eyes and see what we have made is real. Broadcasting live on Voice America Women's Radio Network, Flick Chicks with Roberta and Manuela. Join us every Wednesday afternoon at 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific, and experience the best of Hollywood. From the stock market floor to your laptop, we are Voice America Business. You're listening to Leaders Playbook, tools for top performance. If you have a question for Dr. Nadler, feel free to email him at rnadler at truenorthleadership.com. Now, back to Dr. Rell. Hi, this is Leaders uh, Playbook, tools for top performance. We're talking with Dr. Robert Sutton, the author of The No Asshole Rule. He was just talking about Ethan at the break, and maybe you can kind of kind of summarize. You know, you said Ethan cost the organization a hundred and sixty thousand dollars. They figured it out, and then what was the result of that? Well, I mean, the, the first part to back up, since we were rushing a, a bit, is that the folks from HR who got mad at him because he yelled at them one time too many, mm-hmm. they put together a very detailed report, which took them. Um, three or four days to put together. It's a very thick report. So that alone to me is a cost when people get mad at you enough. that They, they take three or four days out of their uh, life right. to do it. But that aside, it was things like that. Well, he did have bullying training, and he did have some legal costs. Um, but uh, but um, And then they calculated management time. And uh, finally, as I said, uh, he was burning through all these assistants. And, um, and the problem was this, this was actually a firm that was doing some layoffs of assistants, but, but people would rather take a layoff than to go to work for him. Uh-huh. So, so finding um, Ethan a new assistant when he lost one was a very time-consuming, expensive proposition. So, um, so what they did was they gave him feedback, and, and then they subtracted about $100,000 from his bonus. Wow. So it's not like he didn't suffer, but, uh, it, which, by the way, for Ethan was a smaller percentage of his bonus than you might think. He was a very high-performing salesperson. Um, which is uh, part of the problem with superstars. Well, sometimes superstar salespeople who bring in lots of money but um, co- have costs in other ways are sometimes over-glorified. But Ethan apparently did get a little better for a while. Okay. And, but the last I heard, you see, was he was reverting. He was reverting. And you did say in the book, surprisingly, he blew up when he heard that. Yeah. And then, and, but then he stayed. He stayed. And it so was, his... And it, and so the question to me is, and, that, and I think this gets to the heart of, since the main focus of the book is, how do you lead an organization or a group so this doesn't happen? Right. And, and from my perspective, this is a problem with a lot of organizations, is, is that um, the notion that you can be a superstar and a flaming asshole right. is viewed as, as two things that go together. And from my perspective, uh, they're just not worth the trouble, and they have so many secondary costs. That uh, that organizations ought to get rid of them. And besides the fact um, of the secondary cost, the fact is just as human beings forget making as much money or winning as much games as possible. That for me, life's just too short to be around people like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, especially when you t- we talk about you know the, the research I said earlier, um, you know how it's going to affect your heart just kind of oh. on a day to day basis. You know, dealing with someone like that. So I I know uh, just just for the listeners, you have a great blog. Maybe you can state what the blog is because you have a lot of updated research. Oh, it's just bobsutton.net. So that's the bobsutton.net is the blog. And um, and so what I do is I, I blog probably maybe about half about stuff relating to in the workplace. And then I'll talk about innovation a lot and also turning knowledge into action. Okay. My, my general approach, as an academic for better or worse, is I, I try to um, be evidence-based in most things. And when I'm not, I try to let people know. Yeah, yeah. Um, but... Um, but so uh, so in terms of updating, I, I don't know what you would like to talk about next. Maybe how to run an organization. So yeah, that. I think one of the things you had there, you had some really good examples about what or, what have organizations done to make themselves jerk proof. And I think uh. sometimes just hearing you know the, the the type of organizations and that they are is not only interesting that they're really applying it. Well, well, when organizations try to um, enforce something like the no asshole rule. Or, or no bullying, they tend to use a set of practices. Uh, they tend to screen people out in interviews. So Southwest Airlines is pretty famous for that. The organization I know that's most famous for this, or at least most dramatic, maybe not most famous, is a company here in uh, California called Six 
Success Factors, hmm. which is actually doing very well. And what they do, they're led by this crazy guy, Lars Dahlgaard, who's fabulous, the CEO. Um, they have all, all new employees uh, sign a statement that, among other things, says that they won't act like an asshole. Huh. And, that's, and Lars is really quite interesting. But having a statement isn't enough. They do. In terms of organizations that do this, they'll, they'll, they'll tend to have it as part of their training, part of the reward system, uh, for, part of the performance evaluation system, and then they'll seriously fire people when they break the rule if they can't reform them. So, I mean, since I've written the book, I've gotten all sorts of reports from people of uh, organizations that have no jerk rules. So Barclays Capital is one organization that uses it for promoting um, executives. Uh, Perkins Coey, which is a law firm in Seattle and has been consistently on the best place to work list, is an example of this. Uh, um, what's another one? Washington Mutual. I've had a lot of conversation with a guy named Lou Pepper, who was uh, CEO of Washington Mutual in the 80s, and uh, he described as part of turning around the or- organization, uh, they said they would hire the best people they could find who weren't assholes. And the interesting thing about, about Lou Pepper is he had, had sort of this little theory that when you, um, th- that when you have people um, treat each other in a more civilized way, that they also tend to provide better customer services. And I noticed that just last week, Washington Mutual was at the top of the list um, in, in terms of, of customer service on, uh, on uh, you know, various surveys. So, uh, so, so that's sort of an interesting case. But, but the point is, and I've got a longer list on, um, on my blog, but uh, the point is that organizations that do this, it isn't just a rule they write down. It's something that, that they try to have infuse everything they do. Right, right. So, so one is raising the awareness, and then two is really, you know, having some actions and yeah. and, and executing against those actions. I mean, the, the other thing which is really interesting, which um, came out from success factors and a few other places, is that the last thing that I would want to do would be to sort of create the impression that there's those, those perfect people out there who are never assholes, right. and then there's these flaming dirts. Um, what what happens for most of us in life is that uh, most of us try to be pretty good, but then we blow it every now and then. Right. And uh, in, in terms of enforcing norms and organizations, the big question usually is what happens when there's a transgression. And I was talking about Lars Dahlgaard, who's the CEO of Success Factors. The first time I met him, he explained to me that he had recently lost his temper and started screaming at eight people in a meeting, wow. which uh, you know most CEOs aren't going to tell you that to start with. But he said, he, I realized in mid-sentence I was breaking the no-asshole rule. So he not, and they have, the, they call it the no-assholes rule. And um, so he said, I not only apologized to the eight people in the meeting, I sent out a note of apology to all 400 people in the organization huh. because they were going to hear about it anyway. Right, right. And, um, and huh. so I had to deal with my hypocrisy. And, I, and in, in that, I think, sort of shows to me how norms are enforced in organizations yeah, yeah. because... It's not like uh, you're perfect all the time. Really, the real test is when something goes wrong. Well, and I think you know, working with leaders and executives, you know, getting them to be vulnerable, getting them to admit that they made a mistake, getting oh, yeah. them to to say I need help. I mean, which is the opposite of the smartest person in the room, just to, to make themselves more human, makes it so much easier for everybody else. So that he sounds like a great example of that. You know, well, and the other thing about Lars that's really funny is he describes himself, and I mean, he's described himself on national television. I'm not telling any secrets. As a recovering asshole, uh-huh. <laughs> so, so he's so he's yeah. sort of like this really strange character. In in this, also, it's really interesting. This really has implications for um, recruiting people, mm-hmm. and it, because um, he's in, they sell enterprise software, and um, and so he will recruit people from, and I won't use the name of firms, or I'll get in trouble potentially. That are famous for having asshole salespeople are very effective. Uh-huh. And what Lars has him do is he says, "I have him sign the statement." I explained to them I am a recovering asshole, and he says, well, you know, it's amazing how many of them change when you put them in a different situation. Huh. And so, uh, so, so, it's not, so, so he doesn't exactly screen them out in hiring. What he does is he set expectations, and he tells them that if they can't um, follow the rules, they'll get fired. Right, <laughs> so right. He tells them all that. Well, I think that's, that whole thing that typically doesn't happen in most organizations, you know, is quickly orienting them, quickly managing expectations. Right. You know, you want people to be successful, but but many leaders don't give them the rules. So, so I, I think that, to, to your point, beyond the asshole thing, which I can get overly obsessed with, of course, um, <laughs> if you look at, so in, in, this is, Guy Kawasaki puts this on this blog, they've got now, I think, 
14 rules of engagement they have there. And one of the things they do, which I'm um, really impressed with, is they have very high performance standards, but Lars really believes in transparency, uh-huh. that you, shouldn't, you should never say something behind somebody's back that you wouldn't say to their face. Right. And, um, and, and, and so that's, that's in the list as well. So in, in some of the ways they enforce these norms, which amaze me being in a secretive world of academia, is that he doesn't allow blind copies in emails. Oh, okay, <laughs> good, good. Cool. Well, so we're, we'll, we'll, come, we'll come back to that in a second <laughs> for, our, for our last piece. Okay, thanks, Bob. Thanks. We'll be right back. Most leaders underestimate their influence and power over others and thus underperform. Dr. Relly Nadler and Leaders Playbook help leaders point the way by providing the strategic place to get to the top in a simple paint-by-the-numbers process. Seasoned and emerging leaders will have answers to these questions. What are the steps to move up and become a star in your organization? How do you develop your people to be the next level leaders in the organization? What are your triggers that are holding you back and how do you manage them? How do you maximize your power and influence so you and your team perform better? What do you do to ensure your communication is received accurately? How do you delegate effectively? How do you develop strong relationships across the organization? Emotional intelligence training, coaching, books, and tools by Dr. Nadler are available at his website, www.truenorthleadership.com or 805-683-1066. Is your family acting like the Hatfields and McCoys? Are you fighting over who gets the antique rocker or grandma's hand-stitched quilt? Believe it or not, there's a better way to settle your family's estate, peacefully and fairly. Join host Angie Epting-Morris for Passing the Family Torch and learn how to avoid conflict and keep peace during an estate settlement process. That's Passing the Family Torch every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern on the Voice America Radio Network. In today's society, we seem to be more concerned with being politically correct in our conversations than we are with talking about what is really on our minds. Let the truth be told with host Michael Pittman and co-host Torrance Mathis. is an open forum where people can not only say what's on their minds, but also reach out for advice and support free from scrutiny or harsh judgment. Let the truth be told every Thursday morning at 6 a.m. Pacific, 8 a.m. Central, and 9 a.m. Eastern on the Voice America Radio Network. The bottom line in business. Voice America Business. You're listening to Leaders Playbook, tools for top performance. If you have a question for Dr. Nadler, feel free to email him at rnadler at truenorthleadership.com. Now, back to Dr. Rell. Hi, this is Leaders Playbook with Dr. Rell Nadler. We're interviewing Dr. Robert Sutton out of Stanford, the author of The No Asshole Rule. And just before the break, you were talking about the kind of the 14 rules of engagement, and it sounded like one of them that may have got lost was about the no blind copies. Yeah, well, well the, so we're talking about success factor in Lars Dalgard's company, which is doing very well on the verge of going public. And um, so, so what Lars really believes in is no transparency, is complete transparency to the point of it. I actually find it kind of terrifying watching him in action. Mm. I mean, one is no blind copies, frankly. I use blind copies. And the other thing is, so, and this was like the second time I met him, he said, so I was talking to one of my VPs today, and he was bad-mouthing another VP. Right. So, so he said, what I did was I said, could you go on hold for a second? So he said, I put the guy on hold, and I called the guy who was bad-mouthing, and I said, this guy's got something to say with you. That's <laughs> worked out like within 30 seconds. Yeah. And that's a, a little different than any place I've ever been. So, so Lars is very active, and Lars really believes that you've got to be up front. And, you know, you were talking about vulnerability. Right. The thing about Lars, I think, that makes that place work is that that really is Lars' style. Uh-huh. Is he, is he will be, um, when, and I've already talked about some of his mistakes, he will be so critical of himself, it's incredible. Right. But then he'll model the right behavior, which is very hard to do. Uh, so that's great. And I think uh, Stephen Covey talks about the, one of those rules of occasions, honor the absent, and it sounds like Lars uh-huh. really, really puts the absent on the phone. <laughs> So that's good. <laughs> well, so um, anyhow, so but, but I mean, but the, the general point I think we were talking about was 
in, in terms of uh, avoiding a bullying workplace, that there's just a set of things that organizations do. There's a, there's a surprising number of organizations out there that at least try to do it, and it's not inevitable that you're going to have jerks or that you – and then the other thing people say is, well, don't you have to be tough and nasty to succeed? In fact, I had a surgeon arguing this recently. Surgeons can be very nasty. Right. And the fact is that if you look across um, occupations, and I think this is where some of the EI stuff does come in, it actually turns out the evidence we have is that people who are civilized and considerate on average lead more effective organizations. Yeah. Um, and uh, there certainly are some exceptions to that. But I would argue that they succeed despite rather than because of their nastiness. Well, and I, and I think it's that discretionary effort that you described, that people put more efforts discretionary and they choose to do it because they, right. they, they want to please you, they're loyal. But so in the last couple minutes, maybe you can talk about if your boss is a jerk, what are some of the key things you can do? Right, so so for, if people are curious, I have a list, an updated list of uh, tips for surviving uh, nasty bosses in workplace on my blog. But the first thing, and I, and I think this is, everything else is less important than this, the first thing is that if you're in a situation where you've got a nasty boss or a nasty workplace, if you think about the evidence we've been talking about, there's two things that are likely to happen. One is that you're likely to get um, physically ill and, and, and to suffer other negative consequences, and you mentioned that at the outset with the blood pressure. Right. And the second thing, which uh, I, maybe we haven't talked about yet, is, is um, one of the things that's very well documented is that emotions are very contagious. Yep. So, in fact, there are studies that document that people who work for um, nasty, aggressive, overbearing bosses become like them, and I think there's probably two reasons. One is they need to be that way to defend themselves, uh-huh. and then the other one is just the, this sort of contagiousness, this mimicry that human beings tend to do. So, therefore, my advice is if you're in one of these situations, uh, try to get another job in the organization or get out in some way. And um, it is interesting. That's one of the main thing I get sort of testimonials about is people who say, I left my job and I can't believe how much better it is. Yeah. But, but having said that, I mean, a lot of us are in situations where we can't get out. So some of the things I suggest is um, some polite confrontation sometimes works. Uh, another thing which you and I were actually talking about, I think, at the break, is this notion of avoidance. Right. That, that sometimes when you're um, around somebody who's nasty, that you at least um, uh, finding ways to avoid them. In fact, you were talking about bosses with low EI that um, their employees will start avoiding them, which, which leads to less understanding and productivity for everybody. But it is a coping uh, mechanism. Um, and then the other thing that if you if you talk to the lawyers, and I think they're right about this, and the HR people, one of the most important things to do is if you really feel oppressed by the person or the situation is to uh, is to keep a diary or a record of what happened. And uh, and the thing that's really coming out here is, and there's some research uh, from a professor in, um, in in I think it's Arizona who who shows that uh, people who fight back successfully against bullies they not only document it they get a bunch of coworkers to join them in documenting it. So right. if you feel like you're in an abusive situation, uh, see if you can gang up with some of your fellow uh, victims and fight back. I talk about this on the blog, but my main advice is get out if you're in one of these situations. Yeah, it's yeah. difficult. Well, and I think on the uh, the bullying research, you know, it basically says <clears throat> that not much happens to the bully, but the target, as they call it, 70% of the time has to leave to, right. to get out of it. So. Right. And, and, and so that's, uh, in this moment, I wish I could remember her name. It's actually New Mexico. Her evidence shows that, but to the extent that, um, you, have, that you have a bunch of people who fight back rather than one. Right then the tables get turned. So, yeah, but if you're just by yourself and don't have any support, oh, it's a bad situation, as you say. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's really tough. So uh, before we end here, any kind of current research, kind of books, or things that, you, that you're working on uh, for the next, I'm next kind of, focus? I, I'll probably write something like um, a follow-on from this book, not exactly a sequel, but... I've frankly got so many ideas I'm afraid to talk about them. Okay, okay. <laughs> and then, but, but the other thing that I'm starting to also do, since, I mean, one of the main areas that I do work with organizations in really most of my teaching is in the area around innovation and uh-huh. creativity. Right. So, and I already wrote a, a creativity sort of book called Weird Ideas That Work, but uh, I think I'm going to write um, another creativity book in the next couple of years that sort of summarizes what I've learned from uh, working with organizations and my doctoral students doing research. And right. Especially, uh, we teach uh, classes at Stanford, a whole bunch of us at Stanford, 
Design School or Hassel Plattner Institute of Design, where we have students in groups do real creative work for real organizations. Uh-huh. And um, that's been very interesting because, I mean, you have a situation, I mean, just for example, where, uh, the, where the students worked with Google to try to improve their experience um, I better not say the name of the product, but around using a product. Right. And they actually changed what happens, and another group actually um, ended up starting a, a company from what they've done. And we had everybody from sort of Walmart to Disney to, um, I already mentioned Google, and then um, a lot of um, real sort of hands-on creative work where we put pressure on students. And our main goal, and I'll end here, which is consistent with um, emotional intelligence, is that we don't believe that we're producing brilliant individual creative students. We're producing students who can be successful creative collaborators. So that means right. they know the work practices, but also means they have enough self-awareness to know how to contribute to a creative group of their strengths and weaknesses and how to work with others. So oh, that's great. the term EI it definitely is part of the story. Well, and especially they're able to collaborate and, and understand what somebody else is, say, is oh. saying instead of just you have a lot of smart people at Stanford. So it, Instead of focusing on, here's my great idea, that collaboration is challenging. Well, so let me just to kind of bring this to a close so you can see a lot more uh, about Bob's work on bobsetton.net. And the No Asshole Rule, I think it would be a great book to, to go ahead and get, and especially to take the assessment and, and see, see where you're at. And, uh, Bob, thank you very much for, for joining us. This has been very insightful. That's great. I, I, the link to EI is just great. I think it's perfect. Oh, good, good. Well, especially around it's it's the self management and and the research on emotional intelligence. If someone wants to get the biggest bang for their buck, and we'll be talking more about that in other shows, it's the self management. How do I manage myself? That's the fuel to allow you to really perform. So, and it is something that that working with a lot of management students and students who are going to be managers. The degree to which we don't teach that just to, in, is part of their education is unbelievable. We just have them sit there and talk, and then try to outdo each other by being the smartest person yeah. in, the room, in the room. But uh, so I, I really am a big fan of the kind of stuff that you're doing because it, wh- one of the reasons that uh, people like you get work and should get work is that we don't teach it in school even though we should. So. <laughs> well, that's good. It's, um, it's, I it's believe the, it. I'm not kidding. It's this, it's the second level of education. So yeah, well, that's what you're doing. You're making up for stuff that. American education doesn't do for students. In fact, I think we teach them the opposite sometimes. Yeah, well, that's true. And, and I know just from people I've worked with from MBAs and, and uh, doctoral students, it, it, is this, it is all the intellect. So that's important, but the other stuff is probably just as important. Yeah. Hey, well, well, thank you very much. I want to take a minute or two and just let people know how they can go to the website. Um, but if you want to stay in the line, maybe we'll get a minute or two sure. to talk. So um, <clears throat> if you are curious we talked about for the no asshole rule to get to get Bob's book and see where you are with that. But then also if you go to www.leadersplaybook.com, you'll be able to download a free leadership tool, and it's called the Derailer Detector. It's really taken from the literature of a, of a, a bunch of key sources. Um, and where are you on some of these key derailers? Uh, different than the, the bullies, there may be a little overlap, but what are the things that are going to get in your way uh, smartest person in the room, drives others too hard, doesn't learn from your mistakes, um, is approval dependent. You're not making decisions enough on your own. So go to www.leadersplaybook.com. This has been uh, Leaders Playbook, Tools for Top Performance. Next week we're going to have a brain expert who's going to help us look at some of those things we talked about today and what happens when you lose it and are there some ways to better manage yourself. Thank you very much. The Internet's only all business and financial radio network, Voice America Business. 